So just think of the cognitive dissonance and the emotional toll that working in a system like that takes on a person. And think of the dysfunctional organization that results from training people to lie and lying all the time. It's dysfunctional. You can't turn it off. Well, I mean, you can, but... That's Kent Kilsby, a former Central Intelligence Agency case officer and longtime contractor who's now corporate counterintelligence consultant at ProCypher, where he leads engagements that help organizations protect their critical intellectual assets. Kent is a linguist by background, and he's worked in intelligence positions in Southeast Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. Kent has expertise in counterintelligence, counterproliferation, counter-narcotics, counterterrorism, and Islamic extremism. Kent joined the Air Force in 1980, he joined the CIA in 1990, and he left the CIA nine years later, only to return as a contractor after the September 11 attacks. For Kent's work in the Philippines, Malaysia, and Indonesia, he was awarded the Intelligence Community Seal Medallion, the highest award that the United States intelligence community gives to contractors for their contributions to America's intelligence efforts. His work in the Philippines was described in a 2007 article in the Atlantic magazine called Jihadist in Paradise. It was an article that explored the year-long hunt for pirate terrorists who had kidnapped Americans. It was written by Mark Bowden, the author of Black Hawk Down, Killing Pablo, and The Last Stone. Kent and I met in August 2009 when I was working as a life coach in Ashburn, Virginia. I received an email from a, quote, former CIA case officer now doing training for federal officers in a variety of fields. I would have dismissed the email, but he went on to give some bona fides and wrote, quote, I'd like to propose that you might be a good consultant on some issues of interest to our trainees. We never ended up doing that work, but we became friends and stayed in touch over the years, and I've watched as Kent's predictions about Russian influence began to make it onto the front page of major newspapers. Some of his work uh, to expose Wayne Simmons, a Fox News contributor and contributing analyst whose uh, 27-year career in the CIA was a complete fabrication, ended up on the front page of the New York Times. Today, we're going to talk about life as an intelligence officer, the cost of being in a profession where you're being hired because of your clean record and then are asked to turn your life into a house of lies, the silent trauma that accompanies much of that work, and the stigma about getting help. Hey, Kent, before we get started, I wanted to ask you a question. When I was doing the research for this story, I came across this old, I think it was 2001, Associated Press article that had been published in the Baltimore Sun about you helping a Maltese couple resettle in the United States. And one of the things that surprised me in the article was they mentioned that you had written a children's book. 
And I, I don't remember us ever talking about it, but I wanted to ask you before we get started and into the topic of what we're going to be talking about today, I wanted to ask you about uh, the children's book. Well, uh, I, I, I wrote a, a series of children's books, Children of Malta, while I, was, uh, while I was stationed in Malta. My kids were young at the time. And what I always do with, with them is go out and explore wherever we are. If we're in D.C., we're going to the Smithsonian. We're going, we've done all the Civil War battlefields, all that kind of thing, you know, history kind of things. And we started doing uh, Maltese history, and I realized, man, this is there's just this unbelievable layer upon layer of history here, going back thousands of years to the um, the the oldest man-made structures still standing are in Malta, uh, like sort of like Stonehenge. Stone. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. So I started with that era, and then I divided it up into the different. I mean, I, I didn't divide it up, but history naturally divides up into the different eras of history of Malta. There was the Roman, the Phoenician, the Arab, the uh, Normans, the Brits, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, what I did is I conceived of of children's children living in each of those periods. And created oh. a, a just just a short story that illustrated life at that time with with my buddy uh, Konst, a, a Bulgarian guy, artist, just fantastic artist. I never could have done it without him because they're, the approach is a picture book uh, that's just uh, full page, eight by ten. I don't know, huge huge pictures, full color illustrations, and, and very minimal text but the the pictures tell the story uh yeah, yeah. so it was pretty it's cool. one of the yeah <laughs> I, uh, yeah i, I ended up having cool. to uh self-publish it there i couldn't get a publisher so i self-published it but it caught on in malta they were really the maltese loved it the the composer uh their, their national composer i can't remember his name now fell in love with it and created um wrote some music to go along with it. And we had a, oh, a, cool. an unveiling where he, uh, we, we uh, had, had a reader read the book, a little, a little girl learned his music. The, the story is Shrina at Hagar Im, uh, which is the, uh, the, the Stonehenge like place. And, and it, it's, it's a little girl named Shrina. So the, a little girl learned the, the composer's music and played the music uh, along with to accompany the uh, reading of the book when it was when it was first unveiled. It's pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. So you know, Kent, not a, Mark Bowden hasn't written a lot of about a lot of people. He's written about Pablo Escobar, Osama bin Laden. You know, the the military that fateful military raid on Mogadishu led to Black Hawk Down. And, uh, you know, he's written about Lloyd Welsh, who was the killer of the Loyne sisters in Maryland, not just anyone. So what was it about your career that rose to the level of uh, his interest in, a, you know, a, a long article in The Atlantic? Well, it seems like what uh, the, I, I don't know exactly how Bowden got into the story, but it seems like when the the story of the Burnham hostage rescue operation was publicized. 
That is, it suddenly was on the front page news uh, in uh, around the world, really, but in the U.S., that Bowden started digging around and the the Filipinos, the um, Marine officers who had been who, who ran the operation and who who worked closely with with the Filipino army in, in the final the denouement of that operation, they were quoted and. It looks like uh, Bowden's uh, researchers got in touch with them, and those—they're my buddies, and they were my—they uh, were my uh, partners that that uh, that I worked with in that operation. They told him everything. They told him my name. They told him <laughs> the story. They—they uh, they, it seems like they gave him copies of. Uh, of videos as well that we had given them. Oh, wow. That, uh, of uh, sur- uh, aerial surveillance that they, w- they weren't supposed to have made copies, but they uh, clearly they made copies, but they gave Apparently him a Apparently they did. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they, they told him everything and he wrote the story. And when he had the story written, he called me. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, what are the effects of living a life with constantly where you're constantly lying? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting issue, Jason. Uh, and, and it's it's really crucial to this whole uh, subject of of what of living undercover and what that really means. And, and like like we mentioned before, living undercover is requires constant lying. Everything about you, everybody you deal with becomes a lie. Can I ask a question about that real quick? Are there are there some people you can tell the truth to, like your wife or your husband or your kids? Or Absolutely. What's it like? it, there there are, and it, but it's totally up to you. And you've got to make uh-huh. the determination of uh, of who you believe can deal with it, and everybody makes different determinations, and those mm. determinations, who you decide to share your secrets with, are crucial in your personal life and what happens to you in the future. So you could have like a a family member who talks a lot, right? Yes. Or is impulsive. Yes. And you might be able to tell one family member, but not another. Exactly. Right. Yes, that's exactly it. <clears throat> exactly right. And you are making those decisions. You make those decisions when you first go undercover, when you first join the agency, and you don't know anything about what living undercover is like. There is the 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 support that you're that you get from the organization in dealing with these things is is minimal to none and generally speaking the support that you do get is not very good so you're making decisions the the individual who begins a life undercover is making decisions about things like who to tell based on bad information because you don't know anything about, you, you don't know what living undercover is like. And on the front end, is there any like mentoring or anything like that that happens where you get to talk to some old hands? Not or? explicitly. It, it, mm. it is, you know, you, you have, you go through training and um, practical assignments. That is, you work on a job 
before you're trained. And that's where you've got people, people who are experienced that you could talk about these things and they could help you deal with them. But nobody wants to admit, hey, I don't know what the hell's going on. What should I do? Everybody takes the the official guidance that's given to you and says, hey, you know, I don't, I don't want to look like an idiot. So yeah, I'll just take that and make my own decisions. Generally speaking, I've never heard of anybody asking a mentor or an experienced person to help them with making these kind of decisions and figuring out how to live with it. So what are those effects so, you mentioned? When you're constantly lying, so so this first one is who you tell. Who do you tell? So you you might make you might decide to tell someone who you shouldn't have, who it becomes a a bad decision, and they don't support you. When they find out that you that you're living this lie, they don't support you. They it becomes uh, you know you you're, you begin worrying. Are they going to tell somebody? Are they going to go to the press? Are they going to do mm-hmm. something? So you've got this. Or and then the 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 other other extreme of in that uh, issue is not telling someone that you should. For example, uh, I believe, and I if if anybody asks me, I tell them you have to tell your spouse, your husband or your wife has to know right. there are people who don't tell their spouse, and just imagine that, wow. <laughs> and, and it's yeah. bad enough. I think about my own story and, you know, I can't really call it a decision because it was in the middle of a mental health crisis, but I guess it is a decision. Mm-hmm. I made the decision to tell no one what was going on and I've never felt more isolated. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So you're, you're in effect, you're living undercover. You're, you're living a lie and only right. you have that, uh, ha- have share that secret. And when it's just you, the, the world, you know, is 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 a is a very kind of uh, unfriendly place, or it feels that way. But imagine if you're you're married and you're living with this person, you have kids with this person, and they and, and you're you're telling them a lie about where you're going every day. Right. It's impossible to be authentic. It's impossible right? to be authentic, and 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 it'll destroy the marriage. And even if you tell them, even if they know, okay, hey, I have to say that I'm working for a, a government organization that I don't, I'm actually working for the CIA, you still can't tell them details of your job. So that's, mm. that's difficult and uh, uh, causes enough pressure by itself, by them knowing where you're working, but not knowing what you do. So sort of only your colleagues can know those details. Only, yeah. I would imagine that would lead to a lot of things like affairs and other wild things and alcohol. Boom, you're hitting all of the bullet points, Jason. That's it. Yeah. So I, I call it leakage into the personal life. So you you know, the 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 destruction that's caused by lying to people in your personal life or holding back the truth, you can't even if they know that you, that you're undercover, you're not you're not sharing with them details. You can't come home and share details about what happened at work today. So marriages are destroyed, families are destroyed, 
your, your loved ones feel left out, misled, and you know it divorce families, separations. Yeah, they have to wonder whether they really yeah, know you. Exactly. You can imagine all those effects. Do they really know you? Uh, what the hell are you doing? That kind of thing. Well, does the constant lying also impact your relationship with your colleagues? Because one of the things I've always wondered about and been curious about is that idea that you talked about the idea that, you know, they hire you because you're squeaky clean. They break you down and turn you into a liar, but they expect you to lie to everyone else, but not to them, which just seems like an unrealistic yeah, ask. Yeah, and and it is. And that's why the the workplace is really dysfunctional because there's, you know, it's it's even, there, there's even a, uh, a sort of old saying within the, the operational uh, division that you know you you run ops but you don't run ops in the office you know that's that everybody always repeats that yeah you don't you don't uh you don't run ops in the office but everybody does right it's you know right it's, right it's like politics on steroids yes it's a bureaucracy <laughs> and in any bureaucracy you are not, not I, I mean the, the sort, sort of stereotype of the bureaucracy is that that you get up, you move move up by not by being excellent, but by being an excellent bureaucratic political player, and mm. political political play involves lying, cheating, stealing, and you've got people whose jobs is to lie, cheat, and steal, and you can just imagine what the effects are in, in the inner office politics. So yeah, that's that's a whole nother uh, <laughs> a whole nother secondary effect. Yeah, and people often I found lie because of anxiety, lie because they haven't done something. I wonder, do you think it ever leads to intelligence failures? Good lord, because you know, yes. if I'm lying to my boss, yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> it, whether whether the lying is uh, is by com- commission, actually, a- actually intentionally lying or omission, just kind of leaving out, you know, making things seem better than they really are by not sharing the whole truth. Yeah, absolutely, happens all yeah. the time. Be- before I forget, uh, you you had mentioned what what are uh, what are some of the the effects, and one thing that happens that is sort of related to the per- uh, effects on your personal life. Is be, and this is sort of because of the security cleared aspect, having a security clearance, as well as living undercover. But those two things together, people who live with that, who are undercover and have security clearances, generally speaking, the the response to living like that is to shrink your social circle. You, the people mm-hmm. that you deal with, it's such a hassle, uh, emotional, psychological hassle to deal with people who don't know the real you, don't know who you really work for. So you might be in a situation like uh, with a security clearance where 
it becomes a lot of paperwork and issues to have close ongoing relationships with foreign nationals. Exactly. If you're so working for, in the uh, Republic of Georgia or, 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 yeah. or, you know, in the here, like for, for example, in my right. case, I have my social circle for pretty much my entire adult life since I got out of the military uh, in when I was 25 was primarily with foreigners. So, when I mm. got my clearance, went back, went into the agency and got got my clearance, I was still involved. I, I was I was on a um, the Malaysian American Society board of directors here in in DC, and you know at least half of the people in that society are foreigners, not Americans. So I'm having to constantly I'm living my cover. I'm constantly lying, constantly thinking about, you know, what's the line between close and continuing contact and uh, whatever, which is you have to report that to security or what's not. And I guess that I I was able to deal with that. It didn't bother me that much. But what my observation is many, many people, they just their social circle contracts and becomes restricted. They they actively avoid talking to a foreigner, being anywhere where a foreign non-US citizen is gonna be. They they avoid dealing with people who don't have clearances. So their social circle re, re, contracts into just colleagues. Do you know the story of um the CIA case officer? Who was in Georgia, Freddie Woodruff? Sounds kind of I, familiar. I just but... read a yeah, I I read a book about him. It was interesting. So he was he was in the 1990s, I think 1993. He was killed under mysterious circumstances, and a recent oh. book came out. He was called, shot yeah, shot in a he was in a vehicle and got shot. Yep, yep. Yeah. And there's all this ambiguity about all of it. But one of the fascinating things, this book just came out a couple of years ago called The Spy Who Is Left Behind. And it's written by a guy who, you know, just went to high school with him and hadn't really been in communication since. He decided to dig into it. And one of the really interesting things when you read the book, because he's trying to find out information from Freddie's um, family members and his friends and no one knew anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one knew anything substantive. He had relationships with these people. He talked to them all the time, but nobody could really offer clues in the people who knew him in the United States about about his life. And I, I found that was just striking. So what happened there? This this sounds like the the author was doing research, and he reached out to people that he thought were in the guy's social circle, and the only ones he could find were probably pre-agency employment. And it yep. sounds like, yeah, there, you know, maybe he went to to his high school reunions and things like that. But but uh, even family members, and, and, right? And, and <laughs> so so what happens is you become you, so you're going to family reunions. You maybe, you know, every every three years you show up at Christmas or something like that. But you can't tell them what you do. And it's all very superficial. You know, actually I guess a lot of family Family relationships get to be like that over the years, but you know it's it's even more so than usual. The people who actually knew that guy, 
his actual social circle was very likely restricted to government employees and probably agency employees, and they're not going to yep. talk. So the researcher right. is, is looking for people who know him and that he doesn't, the people who actually know him, who his social circle has constricted, contracted to, are, are not going to stand up and, and be willing to talk. So that's, that's and what you're And the wild there. thing about it, <laughs> the wild thing about it, Ken, was in his research, probably the biggest revelations he found out came from sources in Georgian intelligence Yeah, <laughs> uh, who decided to leak, right? Uh -huh. There was no leaking on the U.S. side. And then he found a guy who had access to the Russian intelligence right. archives because yeah. when Woodruff was shot, both the Russians and the Georgians investigated. And so he found more information <laughs> from their intel. It's like their intelligence officers knew him better than his family. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Which especially so in, in his, if I remember he was, uh, I, I want to say he was the chief of station or. Yes, he was. Okay. So, so a, a big part of that role is dealing with the local is being, in liaison with the local security services, whether it's military, uh, intel, uh, diplomats, whatever, you, they know who you are. When when you go in as the chief of station uh, in, in the vast majority of places, you are declared to the local uh, government. They know you're John Smith, CIA's chief of station. So right. it becomes a very different environment, a working environment than when you're going in under, under some kind of uh, uh, undeclared status when they don't know who you are and they have to figure out who you are. So I, I found that it's, it's a, it, you've, you've hit on a really interesting sort of operational point, And that is when the, 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 uh, conundrum or the irony of the locals, you being able to tell uh, foreign intel people more about you and what you do than you can to your your family. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Yeah, I was going to ask you about one thing. You know, when I was at the Times, you know, journalists, our therapy occurs at the bar. I mean, drinking, right? Mm -hmm. That That's basically what happens. And after several years at the Times, actually, I think my scandal probably inspired some of mm -hmm. this. Their employee assistance counselor, this great woman named Pat Drew, decided she was going to leave the Times and she was going to start a therapy practice for just for foreign correspondents who were coming back. And, you know, one of the challenges she ran into was that a lot of foreign correspondents, you know, ego, other things like that, not, not wanting to be seen as weak, were really reluctant to get into counseling. I was thinking about, hey, what does the CIA offer? Because I do know officers are very reluctant to go get outside private counseling. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if there is anything that the CIA does on the back yeah. end so let's, I'm, I'm going to hold that thought for just a second because this, it's, I got to lead into that, uh, going back to the effects of constant lying. And then the last effect that I wanted to mention is drowning in alcohol or other addictive behaviors that 
because of the pressures, just of the bureaucracy in itself, many people turn to alcohol or or other addictive practices. Uh, I guess there's a whole range of them that could be, but let's just say uh, alcohol is the main one. And living undercover is is the same. Uh, that you you know you're, you're living in this bureaucracy, you're living undercover, and many people to deal with the the uh, the mental and emotional pressures uh, drown themselves in alcohol. So yes, that's a huge one of the effects of constant lying on people who aren't prepared for it and who don't don't receive any proactive upfront support is they begin medicating themselves. So when you have that situation, it, it is endemic uh, among uh, alcohol abuse is endemic among uh, people undercover and operators overseas. It's a stereotype of the operator becoming an alcoholic and coming back from tours overseas being forced into or given the uh given the option to go into treatment and they get a a sort of uh drying out assignment during and after that treatment so yes there oh, are wow. reactive they provide reactive support and services to people who are suffering the effects of alcoholism and and other Effects, yeah. What what about proactive ones? Are there any proactive ones? That so exist? that's that's a, a great question because I think that that is the huge missing piece of the puzzle, and I don't, they, you know, I, I'm sure that the bureaucracy thinks they're they are, are offer preventive measures or proactive. Let's avoid these things, but in my experience. Uh, the and and from what I've seen with a lot of uh, others besides myself, just observing the system, is the bureaucracy likes to sort of pretend, you know. Well, we we always mention that uh, that there, there's pressures to living undercover, and we have the employee assistance program available. So they they think that there there are preventive proactive measures, but Generally speaking, if effective, proactive, and preventive measures are not taken. Are there any simulations or opportunities before you sort of make that commitment or you deploy into a covert position to see no. what it's like? And, and that's what I was oh, wow. about to say is what there should be. And, and I look at this as a I'm also an instructional designer human performance improvement expert. And my approach to improving human performance is you identify issues, you identify problems, you identify areas that that humans are, are being asked to perform in and are having problems. And then you work backwards. And once you identify the problems, you you work out a solution that will uh, mitigate those problems. And as an instructional designer, looking at the, the requirement, the criteria of performance of living undercover and lying all the time, you can't just throw people in, in the, the deep end, especially as we've mentioned before, who've been selected 
for their their uprightness and and not lying background. You can't throw people in the deep end of of living a lie constantly without preparation, but that's what's done. So what needs to be done is to create upfront discussion, training, or some uh, preparation for the mental, emotional, family stresses of living undercover. And it would be very, very easy to do. You know, you, you could create a simulation. You could have where 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 people where where people who are just gone undercover go through a situation that they have to lie that they have to do something they have to respond to a situation and then you you dissect it then you discuss it you throw it out for discussion you bring in uh people who have who have lived with these issues and they share their experiences how the the pressures the the things that have happened to them and how they've dealt with it. You have uh, psychological uh, experts discuss these issues. You open it up for discussion and go through several different scenarios. Or, or you could do it all the time. You know, have, have a weekly, a weekly um, right role play. Yeah, role play right? exactly. Well, hopefully, somebody at the agency is listening right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, it would be great. I, I imagine be, this isn't the first time you've said it. Yeah. Well, I, I actually no, no. I I I did des- I designed a uh, a learning activity when I was in CIA University as a contractor for people who uh, who were overt employees but were required to go out in, in a, a specific circumstance to to go out undercover. And it was re- I, I, what I just described to you. Uh, the what I would what I would recommend is what I did is how I designed it. I designed I, I created a, a a card deck of situations, and each group you in a group uh, each person would draw a card, and the card was a situation. Your your dentist asks you you go to a new dentist, and he asks you where you work as he's filling out the paperwork. And when you say that you work at the Department of Agriculture, he winks at you and says, oh, CIA, right? What do you do? <laughs> that, happens, that kind of thing happens all the time uh, in, yeah. in, in the D.C. area. <laughs> when I was in New York at Seven World Trade Center, this guy said to me, I work for the IRS. And I was like, well, why is there no IRS sign in the lobby? <laughs> and after 9-11, I figured it out. There was a... <laughs> CIA station there. Yeah. And I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah. One of the things that really fascinated me, because I'm, you know, fairly well read and I had never heard, you know, read the newspaper every day, track all sorts of things. I'd never heard about the year long search for the hostages. And, you know, something that I think a lot of folks didn't know, but I did catch on to this was that it was Islamic extremists in the Philippines, which I think a lot of people don't know that it's it exists there as well. Mm-hmm. What what can you what are you allowed to tell us about the backstory of um, what happened? Because I think it's a fascinating story. So the the, the Burnhams were missionaries uh, in the Philippines. There's a long, long history of American Protestant missionaries uh, throughout the Philippines. They're spending years and years there. They have a huge network uh, uh, throughout the Philippines. The Burnhams were captured by Abu Sabaya, the leader of the Abu, of the Abu Sayyaf group, 
the Burnhams were celebrating their anniversary at a diving resort in Palawan, an island in the Philippines, in 2000, the, the summer of 2000, before 9-11. Uh, it may, maybe it was the summer of 2001. Yeah, yeah, probably the summer of 2001. So like six months or, or so before, before 9-11. So American, the, the American official world didn't really care too much about them before 9-11. But after 9-11, it was like, aha, we, here we have a you know, the official Washington looked at this and said, hey, we have a situation that is Islamic terrorists victimizing Americans. And at the time, we were kind of flailing around for, we wanted to do something. The whole country is energized. You know, we've just been hit by Islamic terrorists. Yeah, uh, I actually remember in the week after 9-11 being at the, in the newsroom at the New York Times and one of the interesting things, because, you know, when we were, and I don't know whether this was public or whether this was leaks to us, but people had identified the countries of focus and mm-hmm. the Philippines was on the list. And I remember us being baffled by <laughs> why the Philippines was on the list. Yeah, there's a long history there. Uh, that it's not just the Burnham. So, I mean, I'll, I'll try to put it in a nutshell, but the, the Philippines is 15,000 islands from, and running from north to south. The north goes up close to, uh, uh, I mean, not not far from Japan, relatively speaking, Taiwan, Japan. The south is the southern Philippine islands are uh, down in Indonesia and almost touching the island of Borneo, which is split between Malaysia, Indonesia, and Brunei. Culturally, the southern Philippines that are down by that down by Indonesia and and Borneo, they are in effect Malay. They're 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 almost this. You know, they, they share ethnic and religious ties to Malaysia and Indonesia. They are Muslim. They're uh, very they're seafaring people. They had their own um, their own culture that's very different from the culture up north in Manila and those areas, and. The, not, not to go too deep, but the, the Philippines was the America was, was our the only colony that we've ever had. We we took it right. over from Spain in the Spanish American War in 1900, and it was a colony of the U.S. When they all of the Philippines uh, resisted us when we tried to take over from the Spanish, they wanted independence, and nobody was more resistant than the Southern. They're, they're called Moros, the uh, mm. Islamic, uh, Islamic cultures in the south of the Philippines, Zamboanga, uh, Mindanao is the big island. And the, the history there is, is really, really bad. We did, the, the U.S. was ruthless in, uh, in fighting them. And we, we massacred villages. We, it's, it's where waterboarding started. We used waterboarding against the Moros uh, when we'd, we'd capture a Moro and waterboard them to, to get intel. So they're, and they, they haven't forgotten, believe me. <laughs> they, they remember that and they know it's all there. So to Americans, like, like you said, you have no idea, right? Yeah, no, because most Americans thinking about the U.S. intervention in the 
Philippines would think World War II, the Bataan Depth March. Mm-hmm. They, they probably don't know that part of the history. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. It's kind, of, it's kind of glossed over in our history here. But believe me, people who have been subject to those kind of things do not forget, and they hadn't forgotten. So with that cultural and historical background, then you layer on top of it. So these guys, the the Moros, the the the, the Islamic Phil, uh, Mindanao Filipinos. They look, they, they look at the foreign and, and they consider the Catholic Filipinos to be foreigners and any other foreigners who are helping them. They look at the foreign influence and foreign presence as illegitimate and they feel justified in taking whatever actions are necessary to kick out the foreigners and to establish their own government and their own country, which is their their goal. So they take any actions necessary and that very easily crosses over into sort of uh, organized crime banditry and Abu Sabaya and the uh, the Abu Sayyaf group that he was a member and a leader of specialized in kidnap for ransom. They kidnapped and held for ransom mostly Chinese Filipinos, but they would also get other foreigners, Chinese, Taiwanese, uh, I think they captured Japanese. They had a, a couple of other Americans uh, in the past. So that's, that's what they were doing. So, so we were laboring under very strict rules of engagement. And it's uh, it, having to do with American... Uh, legal authorities for taking actions in foreign countries. And a presidential finding is required. It's, it's, it's secret. It's done in secret. And nobody knows that they're there. You know, nobody in the public. Right. And there. that's when the president determines that, you know, there's a threat to national security and that you can use covert. Is that right? You can covert use covert and lethal force. Lethal you can take covert actions and take lethal uh, kill people. You can do secret stuff and kill people is what it boils down to. And there was not a presidential finding for the Philippines or for this group, but we didn't have a presidential finding. So that's how what 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 Bowden wrote up uh, and, and what the from the Filipinos point of view, it's like, y'all aren't serious. You know, you're here. You've come here. Uh, it's like a PR exercise. You're here to uh, to make a lot of make a lot of noise and get in the papers, but dude, we're here to we're here to kill these guys and get the hostages free. That was the Filipino uh-huh. government's point of view. What are y'all here for? And we would come <laughs> right, in haw right. and say, well, yeah, you know. So so I, it was constantly. So how did it end? <laughs> I mean, it it was a qualified success is the way I like to think of it. Unfortunately, Martin Burnham was killed in the rescue. So, so the Filipino army mm-hmm. found the, the, so the, 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 the uh, Abu Sayyaf had the hostages and were moving around, moving from place to place in the jungle in uh, the Southern Philippines, Basilan Island and the, the Zamboanga Peninsula of Mindanao. And, so what what we were trying to do was pinpoint them, you know, on any day, where were they and how did they get there? Who's their supporting, who's their support group, that kind of thing. 
So we're, we're also dealing with the uh, uh, internal bu- bureaucratic conflicts uh, among the Filipinos. So we're working very closely. I, I was working with, I had, I had 10 or 11 different Filipino organizations that I worked with, government organizations, military, civilian intelligence. And uh, they, they, each one of them wanted to be responsible for the successful completion. So the army had, had, probably the biggest resources there. And so they threw, once there was a, a good idea where they, the hostage camp was at one point, the army threw in a huge force that started uh, sweeping through the jungle. They stumbled on the, the camp and the Abu Sayyaf was used to this. They're, they were constantly in firefights with government forces and their, um, their way of responding, they would they would uh, shoot off uh, rocket propelled grenades, RPGs, and then just lay down, shoot a lot. They would pop, pop, pop a couple RPGs and then shoot a lot at, and then run away. So the uh, usually the Filipino reports would come back. You know, we ran into 350 uh, rebels. And when, when actually it was like six, <laughs> because the, <laughs> six with an RPG, <laughs> yeah, the RPGs and, and shot a lot. And, 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 you know, there it's in the jungle, so it's all pretty much invisible. So in this case that, that happened in, in the firefight, uh, Martin Burnham was, was accidentally struck by nobody knows who he was, he was hit by fire. Gracia, his wife was wounded in the thigh and, the uh, when, when the Abu Sayyaf retreated, they left. Mm. They left them there, and the Filipino military medevaced them out of the jungle to the Southcom, the Filipino army, ba- uh, Filipino military base, where we were. We were based out of, and they flew them into that base, and so she was rescued. It took about another, if I, if I remember right, I want to say a week of hot pursuit to get the the survivors. There was about five of them in that group that were running. And we we identified the place they were going to be picked up. They were picked up by a boat. And my colleagues, Filipino colleagues in the Marine Intel, interdicted that boat as they pulled away from the shore and, and uh, engaged him in a firefight and killed Abu Sayyaf, uh, uh, Abu Sabaya, and captured and killed a couple others and captured two or three of them. And that was the end. When were you? When you were younger? When you were a child? Could you have ever imagined yourself being in a scenario like that? Like, what was it like uh, growing <laughs> up? <laughs> what led you to like linguistics, the Air Force, the CIA? Yeah. So. Um, those are kind of two separate issues, but they're they're really related. But could I have imagined that? I guess I did. I guess I guess all when I was I grew up in the '60s. I was born in 1960, so I grew up in the '60s and '70s. And American boys in that period, we played war all the time. I was constantly imagining myself in in firefights, in battles. So. You know that that was sort of sort of what GI Joe in the Cold yeah, War. Yeah, GI Joe, exactly. <laughs> you know, but I wasn't in I wasn't in that battle. I wasn't in that firefight. So what what I was doing was the second part of your question: the the linguistics, the the foreign affairs, the uh, 
international affairs kind of things. I never, I, I could have imagined myself when I was a kid in a firefight. I never in my wildest dreams imagined myself uh, speaking foreign languages, living and operating in a foreign culture with foreigners um, on mutually mutually beneficial operations. I never could have imagined that. <laughs> and I, I bet you couldn't also have imagined, and I think people would be surprised by this, you know, the number of people at the CIA who are either converts to Islam or, or other, uh, other similar things. Could you ever imagine converting to Islam? And no, nope. why, why, why did you <laughs> ever could have? So, so, uh, this, this is a kind of a long story. I don't know if we got time to, <laughs> to go into it, <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I grew up, uh, Pretty much the first, I guess there's phases in my life. The first phase of my life was under my my father's control until I was 10 when my parents divorced and I lived with my mom. Under my father's control, he was, he was in effect, he, he was a, a political radical in effect. Uh, um, you know, he wasn't oh, wow. communist, but he was in the 60s, he was... Uh, you know, singing Pete Seeger songs and going to rallies. <laughs> and it went, when I was a kid, we were just, we we're to, until I was 10, I was totally immersed in this radical, I was a red dice counterculture. Baby. Yeah, counterculture in effect. And that's, and he ended up going off the deep end he, when he divorced my mom. He went off the deep end, became a pretty much a hippie. Smoking dope, uh, traveling in a, in a traveling the country in a bus until until he didn't have any money to to pay for the Volkswagen bus and ended up being ended up being homeless and dying in oh, a dumpster wow. in San Diego, D- dumpster oh. diving for meat for his dog. He was living in a uh, storage shed, but anyway, so so that's why that was my until mm. I was ten. I, I was a red diaper baby, and wow. um, when. At, at, at when my folks divorced, we moved back to I, I moved back with my mom to her home in uh, North Carolina, cotton and tobacco. Her family very different world, completely <laughs> different world. And here I am, and and, and we had lived for, before that. We before I moved to North Carolina, I'd lived for five years. My dad was working for the Air Force in uh, Puerto Rico, so we. My dad had moved us off of the the Air Force base into the Puerto Rican economy. We had a little farm, and we ended up having uh, we had a pig farm. So I was pretty much uh, uh, separate from American culture, and I, I was I was a farm boy in Puerto Rico on a pig farm from from the age of say six to ten, and I didn't know anything about real American culture. You know, I was, I, I read a lot. We didn't have TV. Uh, I, I read a lot and, you know, I, I knew, you know, kind of history and that kind of thing, but suddenly I'm tossed into this, this Southern American culture, totally foreign to me. I was totally foreign to them. So I had to learn how to fight really quick. Yeah. Baptism by fire. <laughs> baptism by fire. So my, my first First year, sixth grade, first year in North Carolina, I ended up having like three big fights, broke my hand in one, but I, you know, I, I proved myself. And now a- after that, I was, I was part of that culture. And until I, I left when I was 20, I, 
from 10 to 20, I was uh, a North Carolina redneck. You know, I was. I Is was that when you joined the Air Force? Or? Yep. yep. I, okay. I went to I, I went to East Carolina University because I had no idea wh- why, but everybody's going there. And that that year, uh, 1978, was the year that uh, Animal House came out. And uh, East Carolina University was named the number one party school in uh, by Playboy magazine. So wow. I was pretty much uh, I, was, <laughs> I, I was pretty much doomed. I, I was like, <laughs> I have no idea why I'm here, but man, this is fun. <laughs> after after a semester, uh, two and a half, yeah, I, I guess one year and one semester, I had a zero point two five GPA. And they asked me not to come back the next semester. So I said, oh, okay, cool. I'll just live here and live here in Greenville and party. This is great. So I got a job in a t-shirt factory. I was, I was making uh, silk screens for the t-shirt factory. After six months of that, I mean, there was, it was like, what are you doing, dude? This It'll is, motivate you. <laughs> this is miserable. I, I know I can do more in my life than this. So I went down to the Air Force recruiter and, uh, Three or four months later, I, I wake up and I am in Monterey, California, going to school at the Defense Language Institute, DLI, learning Vietnamese. And that was what really joining the Air Force. If I had not joined the Air Force, I would have been either dead or in prison. So luckily, I joined the Air Force, you know, straightened my life out, got me self-discipline. But passing the test for the, uh, you know, they, they give you all kinds of aptitude tests. And I did really good on the language aptitude test. And that qualified me to uh, go to DLI. And I just happened to choose Vietnamese. They needed Vietnamese linguists. And I had a choice of about four. And I put Vietnamese first and I got it. And uh, that experience opened up my eyes and my life to language, uh, the fact that I was, uh, I was good at languages, the fact that I was, uh, introduced me to foreign cultures and Asian cultures specifically, and that they fascinated me. It was really interesting. I enjoyed learning. I enjoyed interacting with, with the foreigners. I enjoyed learning the culture. And, uh, that's, that's what, what got me going that way. Um, and it and, became sort of a natural transition for you to go to a place that needs lots of uh, linguists. The, um, one of the areas of expertise for you, Kent, in fact, this is how we met, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is deception. And I, you know, I remember several years after we met, you wrote a book called Willing Accomplices, which is a book about, you know, the sort of KGB's continued influence on American academia, Hollywood, education. And I know there were some eye rolls, but five years after that book came out in 2011, you know, uh, Russian influence was all that anybody could talk about. And, you know, you're also responsible for taking down uh, Wayne Simmons, the Fox News contributor who faked a career at the CIA. And the reason why I think of both of those in the context of deception is both provide examples of, you know, the KGB and Wayne Simmons deceiving us, but also sort of our own self-deception about deception. How did you 
Could you tell us a little bit about the stories and how you got interested in deception? So as a CIA human intelligence operator, there's kind of two sides to that life. And number one is you have to be a deceiver. You're a trained deceiver. Everything you say, you, you, when you're living undercover, in effect, everything, your entire life is a lie. So you, you, you're a practiced deceiver. The other side of that life, uh, of that job, of an, a human intelligence operator, is when your job is to recruit and, and gather intelligence from foreign source, human sources of foreign intelligence. And the key part of that job is assessing your assets, assessing your sources. Are they who they say they are? Are they telling you the truth? Are they, or, or is this an elaborate or, or not so elaborate deception? Um, yeah, it's kind of a environment where it sounds like, you know, you have to lie to everyone and everyone else may be lying to you. Exactly. So deception is at the heart of that life. And, uh, I learned very quickly that in the American intelligence community, we are really, really bad at both of those things, at setting up people to be successful as deceivers and in assessing our the, the credibility of our assets and prospective assets or stories. Are they who they say they are? Are they, are they telling us the truth? And when I, after I went through training, I saw why we're bad at it. And it's because we tend to, uh, I, I don't know why there's a long history. Maybe we love technology or maybe we just want a simple solution, but we tend to rely on physiological indications of deception. So in any kind of technical... You looked left, you looked right, your feet were shaking, all things that don't necessarily equate to, to lying. Your skin uh, is sweating, your blood pressure went up, your heart rate changed, your breathing changed, all of those things. Anything having to do with physical indications is what we focus on. I um to focus I, on I remember talking to an FBI agent once and he he was talking about a lot of those similar things all those indications like sweating and feet shaking and I said to him you've been an FBI agent too long because what normal american citizen wouldn't be sweating and shaking if they're being interviewed by a uh, uh an FBI agent yeah exactly exactly and so so the the, the whole the system the bureaucratic system of uh, I, I think a better word for it is credibility assessment, because when you say deception detection, that makes it very specific uh, of I'm, I'm trying to identify lies. Well, actually, what you're trying to do is a, a holistic approach of assessing someone's credibility. Credibility in general. So, so this this focus on deception detection and technological solutions or technological answers has been horribly 
uh, it, it's led to horrible results for us. And there, there's historical historical case studies the, the, well, that, that support this. Two in sort of recent history kind of strike me. And I remember when we first met, we were talking about the German agent Curveball, yep. who um, the intelligence that he gave, which ultimately was fabricated, you know, uh, played a strong contributing role in the decision to go to, or at least the case that was made mm-hmm. to go to war in Iraq. And then yep. the other example is sort of the Camp Chapman attack, and that was the suicide attack by a Jordanian-born intelligence officer who was essentially a triple agent and uh six you know cia officers were wounded in that and seven you know cia office cia officers and contractors were were killed in that bombing but they essentially had thought that you know he was going to lead them to al-qaeda's number two and i those kind of stick out to me as really strong examples of of where our approach to assessing credibility, and I like that phrase, mm-hmm. really failed us at with big costs. Horrible, horrible costs. Terrible. And this is my my take on this is not a uh, against the individuals involved. This is a an organizational national sort of really a systematic failure, systemic yeah. failure, and. It's all based on this belief that there's some kind of physiological solution to credibility assessment, deception, detection. And that's, it is total nonsense. There is no, uh, across cultures, from person to person, in different cultures at different times, everybody reacts differently to mm-hmm. uh, any, to all kinds of stimulus, including stimulus that comes about by telling a lie. So there is. So this nothing- begs a question, though. How did you, if that's the case, how did you figure out that Wayne Simmons, the Fox News contributor, was had faked his uh, CIA career? So, so I mean, there, it's a long answer. You want the long answer? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know who he was coming up against, that I have my own reality-based system, method for detecting deception. I call it holistic contextual credibility assessment. And what that means is, first you start off with, there's no, there, there is no physiological indication of deception. No such thing. Maybe there are in individuals, but... Until unless you know that individual and you know what his physiological tell is, it's that's actually a really great point, because definitely in a clinical mental health environment, we learn this, that you can only really tell whether a client is BSing you once you've known them for a long time. That's it. It's the moving outside (laughs) of their patterns. That's it. And, And and that pattern is culturally determined. So the second part, holistic, is you look at the whole person, you look at the entirety of their story, their personality, their background, their details, and then the context. And the context can be, well, you can call widely defined culture, and that can be national, ethnic, religious, regional, racial, 
the culture, uh, you have to be aware of and conversant in, in, in best cases, an expert in that context. So, to- so what, what was that first thing that tipped you off? I mean, how did you even hear about Simmons and what, what tipped you off? First, you have to understand that you've got to, your strengths and weaknesses as, as a detector. So if I don't know anything about the CIA, that's the, the, if the context, the cultural context is the CIA, and I don't know anything about the CIA, then I'm, ve- I'm not going to be able to make a credibility assessment of somebody claiming that he's in the CIA. So when I first met Wayne Simmons, I, I was introduced to him by a mutual friend who said, who's in the military and said, you've got you've to meet Wayne. Oh, he's the coolest dude. He's high speed, low drag CIA, deep cover operations. Yeah, he, he's, on, he's on Fox and we're doing a bunch of things together. And, you know, we're going to be in, we're going to be working for the military and we got other stuff going on. You got to meet him. He's just like you. I said, okay, sure. So they, this guy brokered an introduction. And I don't have cable, so I, I, I didn't watch Fox News. And, but at that time, Simmons had been uh, for 10 years on the air with Fox News as a CIA, uh, former CIA deep cover operations officer, counterterrorism, Islamic extremism specialist. So I sat down for lunch and I was an expert in the context in which we're, we're dealing. I knew within minutes that this guy was lying. He was uh, he just every nothing he said was credible. It lacked cultural understanding of the agency. He spoke of the agency and what he did, what he claimed to have done. Uh, as if he had stepped out of a James Bond movie. It right. was all based on fiction and imagination. So an outsider sort of listening to it, it might, who doesn't understand the cultural context, might view it as, well, that sounds like what I've heard about the CIA. And is somebody he who cool? understands the culture. Yes, exactly. And here's the thing, Jason, is that at that time, Fox News was on in virtually every CIA uh, office. And, and Which really- is the most baffling thing to me personally. Like, why wouldn't CIA media relations or the spokesperson raise their hand and say, this is nuts? So the, the, the media relations and spokespeople are pure political animals. They don't care about truth. They don't care. They're, that's not their job. But what baffles me is not those people, but the operators like myself, who this guy was impersonating. All these operators had been seeing him for all these years, and not one of them, nobody stood up and said, and, and th- nobody stood up and called him out and then pursued it. I was the only one who stood up, called him out, and pursued it, and that was when it really hit me that this is an organization. We have an organizational systemic failure. And this case, there are historical cases. You mentioned a couple, Curveball, Coast, uh, also all East, uh, 
all uh, supposedly recruited assets in East Germany, substantially right. all, were fake. And they all passed all of the vetting. They passed all the technological, physiological-based vetting. Same thing. They were Russian double agents? Is they, that they were, or, or German or, or East German. German. So, so they were run, run by the Stasi against us. Same thing in Cuba. So that was in the 50s. 60s was Cuba. The entire stable of Cuban assets that had been deeply vetted were fake. They were doubles. They were leading us. Everything they said was a lie. And then, you, you know, curveball is just one example. Uh, coast, the, the, the debacle in Coast is a better, a, a, another example. And Simmons, you know, why, if operations officers are, their main job is to assess credibility, how could this have happened? And it reminds me, and I forget who said the quote, but it was the title of a Tim Wiener book. The word, uh, maybe it was about Alan Dulles, but Legacy of Ashes, that there's this history in the CIA of having significant problems that, that are known internally around things like this, but that aren't externally ever addressed. Secrecy. The, the veil of secrecy allows anything and everything to happen. And that's that's the the main reason this is a lot. This has continued over all this time. They don't have to be. They don't have to justify. There's, you know, you'd think that Coast would have made a, a huge uh, would have been like, you know, you, you look at it and what happened was they sent unqualified people to do a job, uh, the the most important job at that time that there was for the agency to do. And then they used physiological deception detection means to make the wrong call about who this guy was. And you'd think that would have been like, aha, maybe we need to rethink this. But they didn't because they can cover it all up. Now they've made, God bless them, they made them heroes, the heroes of Coast. And, you know, it's, they, they just... But you sort of see them as unnecessary losses. Well, they they were inevitable losses uh, based mm. on the failure, the systemic failure of credibility assessment. They're inevitable. You mentioned, by the way, that uh, Simmons, Wayne Simmons, seemed like sort of a movie character. And I think about like things like our common perceptions of spies. But the reality is it's not a lot like 007. You know, if you grow up in the D.C. area, eventually you're going to trip across someone friends who are work for the agency or work in operations, at least if you're cur curious enough. <laughs> um, but it's not like 007. It's not like the Jack, Jack Ryan and Patriot games or clear and present danger. But what becomes pretty clear, I think is at least for me, I, I don't know if you, it's that verse. Why I'll think of it. Oh, it's <laughs> Isaiah six, eight, right. Then I heard the verse of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then, you know, I said, here I am, send me. And that's that makes me think of the real CIA officers who are out in the field sort of sacrificing for us and going through all sorts of difficult things. And, you know, the thing about the Simmons uh, story that really struck me is it's almost like the people who pretend to be decorated veterans, it's mm -hmm. that insulting to what the 
the real officers do. And I was, I was wondering, what are, what are some of the mis- misconceptions about being an intelligence case officer? Yeah, I mean, I guess James Bond, you know, this is what people, people immediately think James Bond or uh, Jack Ryan or what was the, it was a TV show right after 9-11. I forgot the name of it. Uh, was it Alias or? Uh, a- Alias. Or, oh, oh, Jack Bauer and. Yeah, Jack uh, Bauer. And, right, yeah. Jack Bauer. So it's Jack Bauer, Jack Ryan, James Bond kind of thing. It, and, and those, those are all all nonsense there. It ain't like that. You know, generally speaking, the, the real life, and, and this is, it's kind of, you have to, you have to contrast working in a war zone during wartime and working in a non-war zone when, when it's, uh, when we're not at war, uh, there's a huge difference, but even working in a war zone, it, it is a very controlled environment. You're not out doing individual kind of, you know, James Bond kind of things. You're going, going in a convoy to do a, a, a covert meeting uh, with, with a, an asset. You know, you have protection, you have bodyguards, you have armored personnel carriers, that kind of thing in a war zone. In a non-war zone during peacetime, being an ops officer is is very much, and, and this is kind of the traditional model, is very much like like you know you, you're you can completely live in the diplomatic community. It's not dangerous. It's not no harrowing escapes from buildings. Harrowing or... escapes from villains. You're you're <laughs> you're going to. Uh, you're going to diplomatic functions and meeting with diplomats. And, and, and of course that's, that's sort of a generalization, but cause there are cases, there are people who, who are a little bit different, but yeah, James Bond and all of them is, is not the way is not the real world. One of the things that um, has struck me about a number of the people that I've known who have worked as CIA officers who are in my orbit is, is, you know, often they're back in the United States and their, their lives, their families are often a a mess. And, you know, I have uh, friends who have worked in non-official cover, you know, which for listeners is CIA officers who sort of pose as academics, business executives, or like students. And, you know, everything about their life is a lie. Like their spouse might know their true identity, but almost everyone else they encounter outside of the CIA, they lie to. And I always thought it was interesting that the CIA puts people through background checks, runs them through polygraph examinations, and hires them because they're so squeaky clean and don't tell lies. You know, So it's like your upstanding Mormon is a perfect candidate for the CIA. But then it asks them to lie to everyone. Like, yeah. how does that work? And is there a cost to that in life? Yeah, I, I guess you can say it's a problematic way is how it works. And yes, it's, there's absolutely a cost. And I think what this boils down to is that there's a an organizational bureaucratic failure to recognize and properly deal with the human the human factor. And that begins with selection. 
So you, you have to, as a, I became a headhunter, I left the, the CIA and during dot-com and became a headhunter using my skills in assessing people and, uh, and helping people to solve their problems. And I set, I, I established a very successful business as a headhunter. And as a headhunter, I gave a hundred percent guarantee that the people that I that, that I the candidates that I brought to a client company to hire were who they who they said they were and they were ready, willing, and able to do the job. And what that required me to do was to analyze the job that they were going to do, and then to uh, establish selection criteria based on that job, based on the competencies for the job. So, so that gave me a, a very good understanding of the weaknesses of the government's approach to hiring people to become CIA operations officers. And Kind of like if you want to hire somebody to be a liar, hire people who are comfortable with lying. Exactly. <laughs> you know, if, if you want to hire people. You have a lot less cognitive dissonance that way. Yes. Yes. I mean, it, it's it's in, once I had that real world, once I got into the the agency and saw it from the inside and then got out and applied the skills that I'd learned and then went back as a. Uh, as, as a contractor and applied real world skills, real world insights to those counterterrorism operations, it really led me to realize this is a horrible systemic weakness of hiring the wrong people to do the, to do the, the job, that, to do the required job. And that's what goes back to Coast. Coast was a perfect case study of sending the wrong people, very nice kids. I'm old now, so I look, look at them as kids. Very nice kids, totally unsuitable for the role that they were playing, supported by a totally unsuitable credibility assessment, assessment system. And that's why I say that this that it was inevitable that it would happen. So if you look at the competencies required to be a, a operations officer, you have to live a lie. You live a lie all the time under any kind of cover, whether it's commercial or other government kind of cover. You're living a lie all the time. You're lying to everybody. You might be lying to your mother. You might be lying to your dentist. You're lying to everybody you meet. You're lying to. And then you have to manipulate other people and you have to, to assess other people. Those are kind of the core competencies. Why not hire right. for those things? Why not, why not yeah. identify uh, people who have those or who have the aptitudes to develop those competencies and hire for them? Well, one of the Just real quick, real quick, the, the, the template that they hire, that they, the mistaken template is be, because of, uh, of sort of uh, the political lay of the land, they want more women in the agency. So the typical template is a woman who has an MA in regional studies or international affairs who has done a, a semester abroad in Barcelona and comes from an upper level state university. Is there anything in that profile that matches those competencies? 
No. It, and in fact, probably matches the opposite. The, so you, exactly. <laughs> the so opposite. I, I imagine kind of what you have to do is you have to take a person who's just generally honest, break them down, right? Turn them into somebody who's quite comfortable with lying. And then the, there's a kind of baffling naivety to it because people come back from their overseas work and then they're expected to tell their bosses the truth. And that that's just been one of the most striking things to yeah. me. You know, do you think you're going to train an honest person to be a liar and then expect them to be honest with you? So just think of the uh, the cognitive dissonance and the emotional toll that uh, working in a system like that takes on on a person. It's real, and and think of the dysfunctional organization that results from training people to lie and lying all the time. It's dysfunctional. Right. You can't turn right, it right. off. Well, I mean, you can, but so, so I mean, if, if I was, if I was in charge, I would, the, the, so once you've identified those competencies, you start looking for people. Number one is street smarts. Street smarts is, is what it's all about is in people who are not in sororities and who don't do semesters abroad in Barcelona learn that dealing with a wide variety of people on the street, sometimes you shade the truth, sometimes you lie, sometimes you tell the truth, sometimes Middle you have little. to say what you need to say to get along. It's street smarts is what you need to hire for. And that's one of the main criteria that uh, you need. If But they're, they're not, they haven't used that in the past. I don't think they use it now. And everything you described is a great example of the dysfunctional result. Yeah, right. So speaking of which, I was going to tell you the story. So back in 2015, I had a woman come to my office who had reached out to us. And she came in. I had been told she was a political officer for the State Department. Mm -hmm. As we talked, it became super clear that she was parked in the CIA Human Resources office or uh, office. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had, she was an officer who had had a breakdown basically mm-hmm. and was leaving the agency after being forced by her superiors to send a young Pakistani woman, woman, um, who she thought might be harmed mm-hmm. back into the tribal areas of Waziristan where, mm-hmm. you know, at the time Al Qaeda was held up or hold up. It, it was just striking to me, um, that, you know, I was looking at somebody who clearly, Absolutely clear to me. You know, I spent five minutes with her and I thought, okay, I'm talking to somebody who's traumatized. And even before she told me about the CIA and the Pakistani um, woman, and I'm wondering, should the CIA and sort of us, the people who ask them to protect us, be thinking more about the mental and emotional health, as you mentioned, of sort of CIA case officer? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the basis, again, is selection. What, what, was, what was her background? Did, did, did she fit the background I described? MA in international uh, very affairs? Similar. Huh? Very similar. International She's a affairs. sorority girl. Languages. <laughs> I, do not, I don't know about the sorority part, but certainly had, before she became an officer, worked as an analyst, had the master's degree in... Yep. Foreign affairs, et cetera. Yeah, and, and did their their exposure is a I don't know if you've ever done a semester abroad program, but uh, I, I did. I have and, not. 
And it's all, all they do is it's Americans clump together and go from bar to bar, uh, you know, when they're off. And it's, it's just a, they, they've moved the American University Party to Barcelona or Siena, wherever they are, and uh, get very little, very, very little foreign experience from that. And it's, it's a, I'm, I'm making broad generalizations. But God bless her. Of course, she's she's going to have a breakdown. Of course, it's going to uh, it's going to weigh on her. Of course, totally. And, and but it's not her fault. It's because of the system. Because the system has recruited the wrong people to do the right job. Who would be the right person for a job like that? Maybe somebody with a military background, street smarts. You know, it's terrible. The I even think about like an inner city kid in a yes. place like Chicago, where you understand at a very early age that there are just tough decisions. That and, and see, that's why I call street smarts. I mean, you know, you can right. you can go into a lot of, uh, you know, you, you can break down that street smarts. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot there within quote unquote street smarts. But that is that's it, generally speaking. And generally speaking. Uh, of of the, the the case officers, the ops officers that, that I know and that I've seen and people, you know, that, that I've been aware of, very, very little street smarts. If you can get over the emotional, you know, having to send send an asset out to, into a dangerous situation or something like that, they that is it, it's a. The, intel- the 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 civilian intelligence community is a bureaucracy that is built on those templates. They're like hires like, so they're laying down the people that they want to work with, not necessarily the people that will be successful in uh, in in the jobs that they need to do. In reality, you know they they are successful because they're successful in the bureaucracy. So if the leaders kind of know this, know about this sort of psychic conflict mm, and, yeah. you know, they know maybe, I, I mean, you don't even have to know about the facts of it. You can make a reasonable guess that there's this kind of trauma. Is there anything they do to address it? I mean, nowadays I, and, and kind of in the last maybe 10 or 20 years, I think that they just sort of mimic what the, our society and the corporate world is doing, and that is making noise about mental health and uh, emotional fitness and that kind of thing. And wh- what do they call it when they when you have employee resources, employee assistance program, that kind of thing? So so there there's they make those kind of resources available, but. There's not. That there doesn't sound like a response that's commiserate with. It, it really is uh, the risk. Yeah, it, it's not, and and it's because the, the I, I don't think they want to deal with reality. You know, they. I remember seeing this in journalism. The same kind of effect we would send foreign correspondents overseas, mm-hmm. and you know, it, when you're a foreign correspondent and you're a good one. You're going to get your hands messy. You're going to see some horrible things. I remember my mentor, who had been in Rwanda, telling me about this giant truck. And and to the day he dies, I'm sure he's never going to walk into a restaurant with his back to the door. Mm-hmm. 
but he he tells told me the story of seeing this truck going down this road in Rwanda out in a rural area filled with bodies. And he was with a group of other reporters and they saw some hands moving within it and they chased down the truck and they said, hey, you've got some people who are alive in there. And the guy said, what does it really matter? They'll be dead by the time I get there. And, you know, being exposed to those kinds of things, there was no help for those people. And it, mm -hmm. it seems like just such a waste of I don't know, a waste of people, a disregard for people. So I want to throw it out to you, Kent, just to see if you had any closing remarks or thoughts that you wanted to share. Well, uh, I appreciate it, Jason. This was a great conversation. Good to, good to catch up with you. It's been a long time since we talked. and uh, I enjoyed it as well. <laughs> this was a lot of fun. Uh, and, and thank you for focusing on the issues that you brought up. Well, Kent, thank you. Yep. I, uh, I, I think uh, what you're offering right now is so rich. We'll probably have a second episode, break this up into two parts. And, um, you know, uh, I think folks will really enjoy this deep dive into a world that I think a lot of people have a lot of presumptions about, but don't really uh, completely understand. So I appreciate you taking the time and being so open.